You know, we're so politically divided in this country. I feel it's incumbent upon me to search for ways to bring us together. But how can we unite Republicans with their deep commitment to discerning the central principles of the ordinary American and then selling them out to the first corporate lobbyist who offers them a Rolex and a campaign contribution, and the Democrats with their bottomless creativity in inventing beautiful ideals like equity, social justice, and women's rights in order to legitimize racism, looting, and infanticide? Well, I thought about it, and after long hours of serious cogitation and enough alcohol to make an elephant think he's a gazelle with cellulite, I finally realized that there's one thing that brings both Republicans and Democrats together, and that's their abiding love of sexual degradation. In the Southern California city of Burbank, for instance, the Democrat mayor, Constantine Anthony, recently had himself filmed getting spanked by a drag queen. Although conservatives mocked the mayor for, well, for getting spanked by a drag queen, Constantine defended his actions in a speech delivered to a bathroom mirror with a towel thrown over it so he wouldn't have to look at his own face, the mayor said, quote, no matter what anyone says, today was a great day for emasculating sexual perversion. By having my butt paddled by a man dressed as a woman, I have made the historic breakthrough of participating in the 17,556 act of sexual deviance committed in Burbank in the last hour and a half, unquote. On the Republican side, the New York Post reports that South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem has been having a long-time affair with repulsive Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski. Noem, a married mother of three who frequently cites her Christian values, absolutely denies the affair, saying the tryst would be a clear violation of the biblical commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, with repulsive Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski. Even if the story is true, some conservatives defend Noem, saying hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue. But of course, that quotation comes from a Frenchman, so it only sounds good, and only in French. In fact, the tribute vice pays to virtue is a stiff fine and possible imprisonment. Now, since the Democrat Party has sacrificed so many unborn children on the altar of hedonistic sex that the demon god Moloch has volunteered to head the DNC, it seems petty to pick on Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert for her relatively minor improprieties. After all, if a grown woman wants to get drunk and vape and sing out loud and grope her lover's crotch while he grabs her breast during a live performance of a family-friendly musical and then lie about it, that shouldn't affect our perception of her character unless we happen to be trying to watch the damn play. But the incident did leave Boebert open to political attacks from Democrats who were quick to point out that such a person could never be a Democrat woman because she doesn't have a penis. So, all in all, one thing has become very clear. It's become very clear why I have no, no friends who are politicians. First of all, I never cheat on my wife, so where would I meet them? But also because I say stuff like this. But the real question is, does it truly matter that Republicans are so sexually depraved that they don't practice what they preach? And Democrats are so sexually depraved that they actually do practice what they preach? I mean, the elites of the Roman Empire were so steeped in sexual debauchery that I still think about the Roman Empire every single day. Isn't it more important that no matter how many issues divide them, our leaders can still share their personal values of getting spanked by drag queens and cheating on their spouses? Isn't that what our founding fathers intended when they talked about the pursuit of happiness? Okay, probably not. But still, what difference does it make? If our leaders are a bunch of perverted, dishonest, unreliable deviants who betray every reasonable notion of decency in order to get their rocks off, as long as they're doing such a great job running our country. I think that's a question that answers itself. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. All right, we are back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic, but thinking about the Roman Empire every single day. This is the moment when you want to take some time out to pre-order the House of Love and Death, my new Cameron Winter Mystery coming out at the end of October. 
please do this. I, you know, I'm trying to check on the numbers. I haven't got the full numbers yet. I think it's going pretty well, but I really would like to get this book on the Times list. If the Times will allow that to happen, it would mean a great deal for the future of the series. I wouldn't be saying this if I didn't think you would love the book. I know you will love The House of Love and Death. And if you like the other books, you will like this as much, if not more. Also, you want to subscribe to my personal Andrew Claven YouTube channel. You get exclusive content thrown through your window tied to a brick and wrapped so nobody will be embarrassed that you're getting material from me. It will be wrapped in uh, porn. But also, also our weekly interview. Our weekly interview is on the, the RSS feed, but it's also on, put up on YouTube. Last week we had Glenn Beck, terrific interview. And coming up is uh, the preacher, Vodi Bakum, really, really interesting, intelligent guy. So you will want to see that. Plus, if you leave a comment on my personal YouTube channel and the comment is morally disgusting, we will read it on the air as a perfect compliment to the rest of the morally disgusting stuff we're doing. Today's comment is from, I guess you pronounce it easy or easy, 33. Clavin is the only boomer I never want to retire. Well, there is absolutely, I may fall face forward onto my computer and die, but I won't retire. And I just love the fact that you spelled my name K-L-A-V-E-N. Because it means you must be a member who's not getting any of the commercials where I tell you it's K-L-A-V-A-N. All right, let's get started with today's episode, The Dark Art of Shut-Uppery. Uh, as none of you may have noticed, over the last several weeks, I've been slowly building up a political vision. And it's different than, say, the political vision of evil Catholic uh, theocrats like Michael Knowles, who have essentially given up on classical liberalism. I haven't. And it's different from those who want to return to a pre-60s, pre-technological consensus. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, my idea is what you might call the Roman strategy, because if you're like me, you, you think about the Roman Empire every single day. And what ultimately brought down the Roman Empire was a Christian revolution of individual hearts on the micro scale and then some very hard-boiled politics on the macro scale. And that's exactly the same thing that created the constitutional order of the United States 1,300 years later. I think it was exactly 1,300 years after the fall of Rome. So those who care about the future of the country can't just sit around railing against transgender this or abortion that, but they have to do the work of reorienting their souls toward God in love and forgiveness so that we become the church because the, our churches are not doing such a good job of being the church. We have to become the church. That's the way America was planned for the people to constitute the church. And then we, the church, have to fight the hardcore political battles to win power without sacrificing our souls. A realistic, practical politics and economy run by Christian men, and I will say Judeo-Christian men, is the only way to salvage freedom. And to accomplish that, good, loving, forgiving religious people are going to have to go up against tyrants who use power without conscience. And the greatest ally of their tyranny is our silence. So let's take a look at today's leftist blacklist and how they try to keep us silent and what we have to do to stop them. Are you struggling to sleep at night? I'm not, I've just given up. But maybe you lay in bed overthinking, you may have anxiety, or you're on your phone while lying in bed making it harder to fall asleep. Did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? Just look at me. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and performance in our days. Having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. If you're struggling with sleep, you need to check out Beam. Beam is designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and help you wake up refreshed. Beam's Dream Powder contains a powerful all-natural blend of ingredients that include one of our favorites, magnesium L-theanine. Beam sent some dream powder down to the studio for my team to try, and they haven't been awake ever since. I have a lot of terrible sleepers on my team. They said Beam really does help them fall asleep, stay asleep, and they wake up ready to go. Unlike regular sleeping pills that have made them wake up feeling groggy. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. And today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's delicious dream powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Better sleep has never tasted better. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash Clavin and use code Clavin at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash Clavin and use code Clavin for up to 40% off. What a joke. They tell you how to spell Beam. I don't even want to, how do you spell Clavin? That's the question. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. K-L-A-V-A-N. 
Let's get started with chapter one, Living the Blacklist. So Russell Brand, Russell Brand, the comedian, he's been accused of rape. Uh, it was a decade ago, but he was, you know, he was 38 a decade ago, so it's a real accusation. And I just want to say up front, I don't know Russell Brand. I hear a lot of these fancy people like, you know, that Ben Shapiro character and Greg Gutfeld saying, oh, Russell is my friend. I don't hang out with celebrities. I, I hang out with you clowns. <laughs> I have a very sad life. My only connection with Russell Brand is in forgetting Sarah Marshall. He attacked the movie One Miss Call. This is cut two. I see. It's just ridiculous premise. Uh, oh, what would happen if your mobile phone killed you? Why would a mobile phone kill anyone? It doesn't make sense. How can a mobile phone have an agenda and kill people? I told her that when she read the script. Yeah, you were the voice of reason, mate. Like, I tried to do, but she didn't listen. What? Going around killing I, people on a mobile phone, like doing murders. Sale, Why couldn't you just take the battery out of the phone? Right, that's it. The battle's over. <laughs> yeah, we've won. I hated it. Well, it's not for everyone, but it... it, it no, it's ridiculous. Here's my favourite scene. Ring, ring. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> it could never happen. No, it could never happen. <laughs> All right. Now, I wrote the film, One Missed Call, and uh, very, very dear. I'm very, very proud of it. It has a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Not many people can do that. It's constantly on lists of the worst films ever made. And, and he insulted this work of my heart and my hand. Uh, so I don't care what happens to Russell Brand. <laughs> go to prison for life for all I care. But I did care a lot about what happened to Bill Cosby, which was very similar. Bill Cosby was a genuine cultural hero of mine when he started out. And when I was a kid, I, he really was uh, an inspiration to me as a child. I did a whole segment about this. And I have to tell you, I believe he drugged and effectively raped multiple women. I've talked to people about it, and I saw some of the evidence at trial. And I believe also Everyone around him knew it was going on or something like it was going on. And no one said a word about it. No one said a word about it. It was, it was mentioned in public several times. No one said a word about it until Bill Cosby started to use his tremendous cultural power to criticize black culture, a black culture that disdains education, calls it being white. It glorifies gangsterism. It puts clowns like George Floyd as role models for people. Uh, it, he... Cosby said things like this about the way black people don't embrace education, the way they talk. This is cut one. I can't even talk the way these people talk. Why you ain't where you is, go right back. I don't know who these people are. And, and, and I blame the kid until I heard the mother talk. And then I heard the father talk. This is all in the house. So all... After that, after that started, all that had to happen was some comedian mentioned on stage that he was drugging and raping women, and suddenly his life unravels, he's going to prison, he's 80 years old, and all of the accusations come out because the amazing shut up machinery goes into action. So what do good people do? Every word this guy said about black culture is true. It is self-destructive. It is created by Democrat policies. It's prompted by Democrat white people who think it's fine for black people to do stuff that destroys them as long as those white people aren't doing it. They're getting married. They're, you know, getting their kids educated. But if black people want to act like that, that's fine. That, you know, every word he said is true. However, however, rape is a real thing. And I'm not talking about feminist, oh, I regretted it, the, the next morning rape, or conservative is being appointed to the Supreme Court rape. I'm talking about actual rape is a grievous offense. You know, it's funny, some people don't believe in free will uh, they, they, because it points to a life of the soul, but those same people know that rape is a crime. And why? Because it's a violation of a woman's free will and, a, and it does violence to a human soul. So you don't want to, I'm not going to brush off rape to restore Cosby's voice. I'm not going to do it. So it's a very effective way of shutting him up by actually bringing these charges that were never brought against him as long as he was towing the line. Same thing with Russell Brand. Everybody knew from Brand's own books that he was a sexual bad guy, a promiscuous guy. He once said on stage that he'd committed rape, but no, and no, no one attacked him when he attacked one missed call, my, my beautiful book, my beautiful movie. It was only when he got red-pilled and started saying stuff like this on Bill Maher. Let's cut four. All I'm querying is this. Yes. Is if you have right. an economic system in which pharmaceutical companies benefit hugely from medical emergencies, where a military-industrial okay. complex benefits from war, where energy companies benefit from energy crises, you are going to He's generate right. states of perpetual crisis yes. where the interests of ordinary and, and, people well, yes. and, separate from the interests of the elite. And,
The interests of ordinary people are separated from the interests of the elite. Truer words were never spoke. And then we got the years-long journalistic investigation into his sex life. Ten years passed. No one said a word. No one investigated. Suddenly, suddenly, the the uh, investigation starts and the accusations come out, like this one from a woman who had consensual sex, had a consensual sexual relationship with Brand, and then one night he called her up and asked her to come over. And this is what she says happened. This is cut five. The door was unlocked. I just walked into his place. He comes running out of the bedroom naked. He came at me with kisses and stuff, which was kind of fun. And then it wasn't that fun when I couldn't move. I knew what he wanted from me at that point. He pushed me up against the wall. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I have a friend here and I, I want you to come into the bedroom. I'm like, no, that's not happening. We're not doing that. So it, he then forced himself into her, she says, and they, I, I believe it was this accuser. There are four of them uh, in the first news reports. But one of the accusers, I believe it was this one, said, had proof that she had attended a, a rape uh, counseling center and she had texts between her and Brand, which Brand apologized seemingly for raping her, saying, she said, no means no. And he said, yes, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Uh, but Brand denies all of the allegations. This is cut six. I know that a year ago there was a spate of articles. Russell Brand's a conspiracy theorist. Russell Brand's right wing. I'm aware of news media making phone calls, sending letters to people I know for ages and ages. It's been clear to me, or at least it feels to me, like there's a serious and concerted agenda to control these kind of spaces and these kind of voices. And I mean my voice along with your voice. I don't mind them using my books and my stand-up to talk about my promiscuous consensual conduct in the past. What I seriously refute are these very very serious criminal allegations. Also, it's worth mentioning that there are witnesses whose evidence directly contradicts the narratives that these two mainstream media outlets are trying to construct, apparently in what seems to me to be a coordinated attack. Now, so here's the situation. One of the things about these stories is that, you know, I, I do have some show business friends and I have heard rumors about Russell Brand and I have heard rumors about Bill Cosby. But in the end, in reality, we have no way, I have no way, you have no way of establishing the absolute truth or falsehood of these allegations. And another outlet that has no way is YouTube has no way of doing it. And, and so we don't know whether these are true or not. But here's the thing, whether it's true or not, whether it's true or not, it is a hit. It is a coordinated blacklisting hit intended to shut him up. How do I know that? How can I say that? Well, if it's true, isn't it just true? Well, first of all, of course, there's the delay, the fact that as long as he was just a clown performing the leftist, uh, you know, pro promiscuous worldview that they, that they promote, as long as he was just living the life they promote— Silence, dead silence, just like Bill Cosby. As long as he wasn't getting in the way, as long as he wasn't, you know, keeping in his lane, it was fine. He was kind of the nice black guy, the middle class black guy, and he was an inspiration until he started saying, stop naming your kids Letitia and Latika. Then suddenly he was a target. We know this is a hit. We know it's a hit because YouTube demonetized him. That's the giveaway. Why on earth would you demonetize a man who has only been accused? And the thing that they say, they say, well, you know, not just YouTube, by the way. I shouldn't just, just pull them out, but they are the, one of the most powerful corporations in America. But the, the, the UK government is questioning social media, sending letters to social media companies about whether he's being monetized. Why are you monetizing this guy? So they're putting government pressure on him. His comedy tour was postponed. Newspaper after news, news outlet after news outlet is putting out these stupid, meaningless news stories like Kristen Bell told Russell Brand not to try anything. Well, she knew he was promiscuous, and she said, I'm not up for this, and don't do it. Uh, Katy Perry, you know, married, her, his former wife, uh, you know, once rolled her eyes and said something suspicious. And everyone... Every person who does this, YouTube, and demonetizing this person, which really is wrong, I mean, it's just entirely wrong, they have the same excuse. Well, these are serious allegations. And so what? So what? I think YouTube is destroying free speech. That's a serious allegation. Should YouTube be demonetized? You know, they are destroying... You know, it's, it's, it's even funny that, you know, at YouTube, there's some 25-year-old working there 
who thinks she's like part of the resistance by doing this, you know? Ah, yes, we're the resistance because we're not letting Russell Brand say things that insult big pharma and big government and big media and big military and the CIA. We're not allowing that. So I'm working with one of the biggest corporations on earth to silence a voice that says that. And she thinks, you know, I'm the resistance. I'm the, the moral force. Well, look, no, no. This is, this is a, a problem. He has done something Let's say, let's stipulate, he has done something that we can't defend and yet is being brought up because he's speaking the truth. Now, the people who are silencing him or moving, you know, the media, NBC protected Harvey Weinstein. We know that. They scuttled the Harvey Weinstein story. Uh, The New York Times, all the media covered up for Joe Biden when he was accused of throwing a woman against a wall and sticking his fingers up her. They're happy to lie and protect rapists on their side, whatever... Bill Clinton, the most powerful man in the world, did to a woman young enough to be his daughter when she was on her knees in the Oval Office. That was fine as long as he supported abortion. But we can't do that because we are the church. We are the good guys and we can't sell our souls. We're all that's left of the church because the churches themselves have folded. So, you know, I mean, the Catholics have an anti-pope. They're raping children. The evangelical churches have gay pride and Black Lives Matter signs up. So, you know, there is no church but us. You know, there's no church but us and our faith and our redirecting our souls toward Christ, our gathering together two and more in his name. You know, and and again, I'm, I'm not limiting this to Christianity, but yes, I am because it's the Christian values I'm trying to get at. We can't condone rape to protect our political position. We can't do what they do. So what do we do? Well, I'm gonna return to that question, but first I wanna take a look at another weapon of silence in chapter two, lawfare and cosplay. Are you a few years, or like me, 700 years out of school and wondering what the heck did I even learn and what was the point? You might think to yourself that you don't have the time to learn anything new if that's you, then know this, you're not alone. It's not too late. Since 1844, my friends at Hillsdale College have been providing education in faith, freedom, and character. They've taken some of the core classes they teach on campus and made them available for free online for anyone who wants to learn. That is right. For free. There are 39 free courses to choose from, ranging from the U.S. Constitution, which I took, it's great, the Book of Genesis, to free market economics. They're easy to follow and they're self-paced, so you can start whenever you want. In fact, you can start right now. It's everything you need, all in one place with no long-term commitment. Let Hillsdale College be your guide. Learn when and where you want. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash Claven to enroll. There's no cost. It's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash Claven to register hillsdale.edu slash Claven. But first, of course, you have to go to Hillsdale to learn how to spell Claven. The most important lesson is K-L-A-V-A-N. All right, let's look at two stories that are the exact same story. Story one is Ray Epps. Ray Epps has been charged for his actions on January 6th. Now, here is a sample of what Ray Epps was doing on January 6th outside the Capitol. And this is, I took this from a Tucker Carlson show, and I want to give him credit because Tucker has talked a lot about this. This is cut nine. We need to go in to the Capitol. Let's go! I'm going to put it out there. I'm probably going to go to jail tomorrow. We need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. All right. Now, to me, what's heartbreaking about this, and you know that I have not got a lot of patience with what people did on January 6th, but what's heartbreaking is that other people hear him say that, and they know that he's telling them to break the law, and they start chanting, no, no, Fed, Fed, Fed. They They know the Feds want them to break the law so they can entrap them and arrest them. So they think that Ray Epps is uh, at least working in conjunction with the feds. Now, people who did enter the Capitol and people who were nowhere near the Capitol are being convicted of some vague conspiracy that we're not even sure what the conspiracy was, and they're being sent away for decades, 22 years. But this schnook, 
not a charge against him, nothing. And if, you know, people who cut down a fence are being sent away for decades, right? But nothing with this guy. And if you say, well, gee, that kind of looks like a conspiracy. He's working for the feds. 60 Minutes does an interview. with Oh, it's all a conspiracy here. The New York Times, New York Times, who once noticed this guy that he was encouraging people to storm the Capitol. They said, oh, it's a conspiracy. It's a right-wing conspiracy. Why would anyone say such a thing? So now, to silence these charges, you see, he's not really working with the feds. They charge Epps with a single misdemeanor count. That's cosplay. It is cosplay. How corrupt is our Justice Department? How corrupt is our Justice Department? Julie Kelly, who's been tracking the treatment of the January 6th people, she says this charge is unique in its leniency. Now, that's one story, this cosplay story of pretending to charge this guy when they're not really charging him, and they'll probably give evidence some way and get out of it. The second story is the same story. Hunter Biden finally charged with three felonies on his gun crime of lying about drug use on his gun docks after the plea deal fell apart, after uh, Weiss, was, who did the investigation, was made the special counsel to oversee the, the investigation. Nothing, no charge about the five-year investigation that allowed the statute of limitations to run out on tax charges related to the Biden family influence peddling business. You know, there's no evidence of that except for testimony and bank transfers and videos and the stench of corruption on Pennsylvania Avenue. There's no evidence for that. So we're not charging with that. We're charging with a gun charge. And they say, well, it's 25 years, possible 25 years. Let's see. Let us wait and see how corrupt is our Justice Department. To me, this is cosplay entirely. So Merrick Garland, uh, Merrick Babyface Garland, our attorney general, he must, Garland, he must lie in bed at night sighing over his lost integrity because he, he wasn't always this guy. I mean, he wasn't always in this position of power. I wonder if he wants revenge on Mitch McConnell for keeping him off the Supreme Court. I wonder if he's just so ticked off that he's not going to be a Supreme Court justice that he's just, I don't care what I have to do to get these people. My integrity, I'll set my integrity over. <laughs> You know, but I wonder if sometimes at night he says, ah, I remember when I had integrity. Anyway, this hack is called before House Judiciary on the investigating the weaponization of the Department of Justice. He's asked about whether he talked to David Weiss during the Hunter Biden investigation. Cut seven. Have you had personal contact with anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation? Uh I don't, I, don't, I don't recollect the answer to that question, but the FBI works for the Justice Department. It's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You don't, recollect, you don't recollect whether you've talked with anybody at FBI headquarters about an investigation of the president's son? I, I don't believe that I did. <laughs> well, you can see how that slipped his mind, right? It's Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, the name, it rings a bell. I can't, I, I don't remember. I'm not recalling. I can't recall. Hunter, Hunter, how do you spell that? How do you, how do you spell that? Biden, Biden, B. So then he's asked about this letter that comes out in the Richmond, Virginia office of the FBI demonizing conservative Catholics and saying we've got to get people in. I think they actually had somebody in, didn't they, in, in uh, conservative Catholic circles trying to get information on these guys. These are the same people, of course, who investigated as terrorists, parents who said, please stop showing our children homosexual porn. You know, but what about, what about investigating conservative Catholics? Here is uh, cut eight. Do you agree that traditional Catholics are violent extremists? Okay. I have no idea what, your, what the traditional uh, means here. Catholics that go to church. May I answer your question? Yes The idea no. that someone with my family background would discriminate against any religion is so outrageous, Mr. so absurd. Mr. Attorney General, it was your FBI your that did this. It was your FBI that was sending, and we have the memos, we have the emails, we're sending undercover agents into Catholic churches. Both I and the director this of the FBI the have said director that we were of the appalled. FBI have said that we were appalled by that memo. So then you agree the that they're not extremists? We were appalled by that memo. Are they extremists or not, Attorney General? I think that- Are they extremists or not, Attorney General? Everything in that memo is Are appalling. they extremists or not? I'm asking a simple question. Say no, if you think that was wrong. Catholics are not extremists, no. <sighs> wow, I, I want the name of the guy who was fired for writing that memo. 
you know, what's the name of the guy? The name of the guy is No Guy. That's that's the name of the guy. Now, to be fair, when he, you know, pulled the I'm a persecuted from a persecuted religion card, uh, he was nominated for an Oscar for the best soulless hack in a performance as a man of integrity. But still, I I think that that is just it's it's a Paul. I want to know. You should be able to answer that question a lot faster. Are Catholics suspect? Are parents suspect? Who was fired for writing that memo? Who was disciplined for writing that memo? But he can't. The message here is clear. If you're against us and you commit a petty crime, you are going away forever. If you're with us and you create a vast series of influence-peddling felonies, we'll cosplay and you know accuse you of gun crime, but we are not going to use the law against you. I've said this, you know, a million times. I don't make excuses for January 6th. I don't care if you got an engraved invitation to enter the Capitol. If you stage a mock rebellion against the most powerful government on earth in a moose hat and you're not serious, you are a buffoon. But still, the message is clear. Shut up or you're going away for 20 years. You know, a police officer said to me once, I was doing some research for a novel and I was talking to a cop and he said, look, if you want to stop somebody, if you want to make sure that you have a cause to stop somebody and question him, all you have to do is follow him in his car for one mile. If you follow him in his car for one mile, he will commit three traffic infractions in that period of time. Either his tire will touch the middle of the road or he'll make a turn without a signal. Or once I was stopped, they wanted, it was a holiday and they were trying to see if people were drunk and I went into one lane to make a turn and then I realized that wasn't the lane I wanted so I signaled and went into another lane and the guy pulled me over for changing lanes too quickly. You will always have a reason to come after people. There are so many federal laws now that we all commit felonies all the time. There's so much porn that we all see it and can be embarrassed. Sex is so loose. We can always find someone to say you did something wrong if that none of that's going to matter, none of the things you do are going to matter, none of the crimes you commit, the fact that you drove on the side of the road, the fact that you raped a woman, it is not going to matter unless and until you speak up against the regime. Then the sirens go on behind you, the light goes on in your rearview mirror, and you're pulled over, not for what you did, but for what you said, for the fact that you are telling the truth. And It's so obvious at this point, it's so obvious at this point that all Garland has to do is show up and lie. And, And, you know, it is a lie. It's a lie when he sits there and says, I don't recall whether I ever talked to Weiss about the Hunter Biden. You know, come on. Come on, does anybody believe that? And, and you know, the, the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, all of the newspapers phrase this as if the Republicans are somehow fishing, that they're somehow, you know, doing something wrong. They're somehow demonizing this. He kept saying, you keep demonizing my department. His apartment is filled with demons. His apartment is corrupt, and it's supposed to be corrupt, and we're supposed to know that it's corrupt. We're supposed to know that it will act against us with the full power of the law, if we step out of line, if we break the law while speaking against the regime, if you break the law while speaking, you know, it's not the regime. It's the narrative. It's the narrative. It's the entire enveloping concept of, of leftist thought that affects everything we do. The material, the idea that we're just material, the idea that men can become women, the idea that abortion is anything other than infanticide. All those ideas that we're supposed to believe, the idea that, you know, women who uh, make homes are sex second-class citizens instead of women who go out and push paper around for their boss. All these ideas, all these ideas, the idea that the government is a wonderful, wonderful thing and can take care of us and that we don't need to have our own free will. So this is the, this is the field of play. This is the real thing. They have a system. It's a good system. It's a smart system. It's like a perpetual motion machine. You will do something wrong, and if you do, you will get away with it until you speak out. So let's start start to think about how you respond in that situation. As you might know, we're all fans of our friends at GenuCell, but don't just take my word for it. Ella from Rockford says, I have both age and acne spots, and this stuff is actually fading both of them. This serum is worth every penny. Ella is raving about the famous dark spot corrector from Genucel, a must-have after months of record heat and humidity. Sunspots, brown spots, discoloration, and even red inflamed patches all disappear in front of your very eyes. And here's the Genucel amazing guarantee. You will see results on day one 
or your money back. So take advantage of GenuCell's most popular package, which now includes the dark spot corrector, plus the classic GenuCell bags and puffiness treatment and immediate effects, all at about 70% off, so you can try the best skincare in the world for yourself completely risk-free. It's simple. Go to GenuCell.com slash Clavin. Start looking years, even decades younger tomorrow. Say goodbye to dark and liver spots, bags and puffiness under the eyes, crow's feet at genucel.com slash Claven. That's genucel.com slash Claven. And now you're probably desperately wondering, how do you spell Claven? There are no E's in Claven. I just make it look easy. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Chapter three, lessons from the old blacklist. You know, people who have given up on liberalism, and by liberalism I mean classical liberalism, the idea that people should be as free as it's possible for them to be, they want now to make everything political because they no longer believe in the church. They don't believe that the church is an actual presence, and they have a good argument about that, and that's why I think the first thing we have to do is restore the church within ourselves, within each one of us within ourselves, and then all of us together. And that doesn't mean we can't act politically while we're doing that, but we have to start to do that. And we have to, you know, instead of just complaining, instead of banging your fist into your palm, you know, it's something you can actually be doing with your individual life that will start to create a bulwark against making everything government. You know, if you if you say, well, I don't like the government forcing me to do leftist things, so let's have the government force people to do right things, you've already lost the argument. You've lost the idea of a free people. So a lot of answers are cultural. A lot of the things that we come up with are cultural. And so I want to take a look at the last blacklist and how some of the left-leaning people handled that in a way that actually won their case over the long term. There's a wonderful documentary uh, on Turner Classic Movies. It's a, it's 14 minutes long. It's really excellent. It's a beautiful example of how liberals, I won't call them leftists because they were leftists at one point, but most of them were just liberals, turned their personal flaws and failures into heroic art that really affected the culture. The show is called High Noon on the Waterfront, and it's about Carl Foreman, a screenwriter, and Ilya Kazan, a famous director. These were men who helped take, make two of the greatest movies in American history, uh, the Gary Cooper Western High Noon and the Marlon Brando movie On the Waterfront. Both of them were about the Hollywood blacklist of the 1950s, and both are just absolute timeless classic films that I think can be watched again and again. They're just great. And in the documentary, the writings of Foreman and Kazan are read by uh, Edward Norton and John Turturro. So obviously, this is the ho- when the House Un-American Activities Committee came out to Hollywood to root out the communists in the industry. And they not only demanded that communists reveal their own history in belonging to the Communist Party, but they demanded that they name the names of other people in their communist groups. Now, this didn't have anything to do with Joe McCarthy. He was in the Senate, and this was the House. This was a House committee. But obviously, the same ideas were involved. And there are usually two ways of looking at this period. On the one hand, the left wing is this idea. It was the Red Scare. It was a scare. There was nothing really going on. There's people ginning up hate and emotions over nothing. And that's just total bunkum. That is completely ridiculous. Uh, it's been proved to be bunk. The fact that the left's idols, Julius Rosenberg, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were executed for giving uh, nuclear secrets to the Russians, they, they were, oh, they were so innocent. They were just pawns and all this stuff. No, it's been proved by the, the famous uh, Venona Files, which was the translation of the decoding of secret Soviet messages, uh, the Venona transcripts, it was proved that at least we're sure Julius Rosenberg was guilty of that. Uh, And so was Alger Hiss, who was the other one. He was their hero. Remember, he's the guy from Witness who was uh, in the State Department and exposed as a spy. And no, no, this is a terrible thing. It couldn't possibly be. It's all Whitaker Chambers' fault. No, the Venona documents also prove that. And J. Edgar Hoover kept the Venona code system, decoding a project secret because he didn't want to reveal that he had broken the Russian code. He thought it was more important that they could keep doing that. And, and you know, this is they detested Richard Nixon for defending Whitaker Chambers and, and outing Alger Hiss, and they got Nixon back at Watergate. And it's not the, it's the same principle. It's not that Nixon didn't do anything wrong. He did do things that were wrong, but so did John F. Kennedy, and nobody uh, did anything to stop him. I mean, obviously somebody did, but that was a Soviet, um, that was a communist assassin. But they destroyed Richard Nixon. The press destroyed the, Nixon the same way they're destroying Richard Brand for real things he might have done, but they did it to get him back for 
proving that the communists were communists. On the right, there's this other thing where they say, well, Joe McCarthy was right. And that's just not true either. He was a drunk and a liar. He was an abuser of people's rights. And Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, who was an actual commie fighter, uh, despised McCarthy because he was giving the anti-communist hunt a bad name. But still, many of the people were communists. Now, I have to say, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to people back in the day who became communists in the 30s. In the 30s, capitalism had failed in the great, seemed that capitalism had failed in the Great Depression. In the 40s, the Soviet Union was our ally in World War II. And a lot of people uh, who were targeted by the House had left communism because they had found out uh, the atrocities of Stalin and the slavery of the Soviet people had convinced them to get out. So you can put yourself in their position. You can, you know, you're a young artist. All the guys around you are kind of communists. So you join the party and then you say, oh no, this is terrible. And you get out. And then the House committee comes after you and threatens to destroy your career if you don't name the other people who were in the meeting with you. And it's a bad situation to, uh, to be in. And so I have sympathy for it. I actually do, even though I have no sympathy for communism. So two of the people are under the gun, Carl Foreman and Ilya Kazan. And Foreman saw the committee coming to Hollywood, and he knew they were going to ask him to name names, and he didn't want to do it. He left the Communist Party. He considered himself a patriotic American, and he did not want to turn people in who were with him. And he saw himself, because he did this, he was being blacklisted. He was starting to be threatened with losing his career, and he started to write a story about it. High Noon, which is a story of a sheriff who the bad guys are coming. They're coming closer and closer, just like the committee was coming to Hollywood. He knows he has to take a stand and no one will stand up for him. This is what he said about writing the script as cut 13. Writing the screenplay, it became insane because life was mirroring art and art was mirroring life. There was no difference. It was all happening at the same time. I became that guy. I became the Gary Cooper character. You could walk down the street and see friends of yours recognize you, turn, and walk the other way. A lot of the dialogue was almost the dialogue that I was hearing from people, even in our own company. So, so the, here's the dialogue. So he, he takes his experience, right? This is his inner experience. I'm not judging whether it's right or wrong or anything. I'm just saying this is his inner experience. And he turns it into a heroic story. And this is the scene where Cooper goes to get help and Henry Morgan plays his friend who says to his wife, tell him I'm not here. Cut 14. He's coming. Now you do like I told you. I'm not home. Don't let him in. No matter what he says, I'm not home. He's your friend. Don't argue with me. He'll be here in a second. He won't believe me. You know I'm lying. You do like I tell you. Over this far is Sam in? No. Do you know where he is, Mrs. Fuller? It's important to me that I find him. I think... He's in church, Will. He's gone to church. Without you? I'm going to go in a little while, as soon as I dress. I guess you all know why I'm here. I need deputies. I'll take all I can get. <laughs> so, so you see how this, you know, little Jewish screenwriter who made a stupid mistake in his youth and joined the Communist Party, but he has a, a real point. He doesn't want to turn over other people to the law for doing something that he himself did, he reimagines himself as a Western American hero, speaking to the country that he's in and appealing to them, essentially, through their values. Ilya Kazan, one of the most talented directors ever, uh, had also left the communists and had come to really dislike the communists. And he also felt bad about being named. And he, with, in a collaboration with Bud Schulberg, who was in a very similar situation, wrote this story about longshoremen. Uh, being, and the, one of them, Terry Malloy, played by Marlon Brando, is being pressed to testify about the gangsters running the waterfront. And here's the scene where the feds come and the, the cops come and try to get him to talk. Cut 12. Well, I don't know nothing. Nobody's accusing you of anything, Mr. Malloy. I hope you understand that. I just want to ask you some questions about some people you may know. People I may know. That's right. You better get out of here, Buster. Now, slow down, boy, huh? I don't know nothing. I ain't seen nothing. I'm not saying nothing. I want you and your girlfriend to just take off. All right, Mr. Malloy. You have every right not to talk if that's what you choose to do. The public has a right to know the facts, too, you know? Yeah. I'll right. be seeing you again, Mr. Malloy. Well, never's going to be too much soon for me, shorty. 
<laughs> That's a great, great scene, great writing, great acting. Of course, just changed acting forever, that movie. Now, so you, you, you get the idea. They're coming to get you to squeal. And even if you're in a corrupt system like Terry Malloy is with the gangsters, you don't want to squeal. And so he's basically taking his personal experience, which is not an admirable experience, and he's turning it into the kind of drama that we can all identify with. He's not getting in people's faces and saying, you know, let's support the communists or these rotten, you know, committee members and all this stuff. He is telling a story that everybody can identify with and doing it to put his principles forward. And that's an, a, a really powerful thing to do that only one side in this fight that we're in is really doing. In the end, uh, Foreman didn't name names. He was, he was really, uh, he was brave. Again, I'm not supporting his communism, obviously, but, but he was blacklisted for not naming names. He had to leave the country, a fantastic career that he had, uh, unraveled. He couldn't work for years. Uh, his work on High Noon was snubbed by the Oscars. His friends deserted him. But Kazan went the other way. He decided, I'm not going to, he hated the communists. He said, I'm not going to give up my career for the communists. So he named the names of the other people who were there. And this is what he said about it. That's Turturro's Kazan uh, cut 15. I was cornered and angry. So I decided to name the other eight party members in the group. Where tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, happy God? Right. I do. I do. Seat it, please. I did what I did because it was the more tolerable of two painful alternatives that were both wrong for me. That's what a difficult decision means. Either way you go, you lose. <laughs> so, you know, in, in the movie, uh, Brando uh, ultimately does testify against the gangsters. And, of course, you have total, total sympathy for that. In, in real life, uh, you know, I, I, I don't... Um, have all that much sympathy for naming other people. You know, it's one thing to go forward and say, yes, I made a mistake. I was a member of the Communist Party and I feel bad about it and I repent it. Uh, but the House was doing something that was bullying and wrong, which was forcing people to name names or else they lost their careers. And they really, really did. So Kazan named names and as a result, he was snubbed as a rat. And he shows you this in, in the movie uh, on the waterfront. This is cut 16. The scene in the film where Brando goes back to the waterfront and is rejected by the men with whom he'd worked day after day, that was my story. I was snubbed by friends each and every day. And I'd not forgotten, nor will I forgive, the men who snubbed me. Old friends, some of them. When Brando at the end yells at Lee J. Cobb, the mob boss, I'm, I'm glad, glad what I've done. You. you hear that? I'm glad what I've done. That was me saying that I was glad I'd testified. It's, it's an amazing thing what you do with culture. It is an amazing thing. Here's a guy who turned these people in, and he's, he, he, this is what he feels in his heart about this. He obviously doesn't feel that great about it, but he's making it sympathetic to us by putting it in a story where it all makes sense. It's such a powerful thing to do. Now listen, as late as 1999, when Kazan won a Lifetime Achievement Honorary Oscar, which was the Oscar committee admitting that basically he had been snubbed for naming names, there were protesters outside. Uh, Nick Nolte, Ed Harris, Amy Madigan wouldn't applaud. Uh, I think Steven Spielberg applauded, but he stayed in his seat where everybody else was giving Kazan a standing ovation. And, and this is a guy who made one of the greatest films, Streetcar Named Desire, uh, on the waterfront, is as great a film as has ever been made. East of Eden is a great film. Gentleman's Agreement is a powerful film, A Face in the Crowd. These are famous liberal movies, by the way. These are movies with a very, very liberal bent. And yet, he was still being snubbed for doing this. Now, both of these guys transformed themselves into the most iconic screen heroes. Nobody would look at Kazan and no one would look at Foreman and say, yeah, that's my hero. But you do look at Terry Malloy and you're so moved when he takes the hit for what he's done. You do look at, I mean, Gary Cooper, Will Kane in High Noon is one of the greatest movie heroes ever. Uh, that's a film that you can't watch without having your innards readjusted toward him. And again, over time, over time, this liberal narrative wins out and becomes the leftist narrative, and they become the blacklisters in turn. You know, in the late 90s, I came to Hollywood. I was living in London, and I came to Hollywood to pitch a novel of mine, The Uncanny, and I was pitching uh, different actresses for it, and the, the main actress was an older British woman, and I mentioned Vanessa Redgrave. 
And I was told in the meeting, no, 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 we do not hire Vanessa Redgrave because she was anti-Israel. And I said, well, come on, guys, that's, that's blacklisting. And the guy, so help me God, he said to me, it's not blacklisting when we do it. And look, you know, I, I would still be occasionally writing for Hollywood if I weren't essentially blacklisted. But they have taken, they have become what they beheld. They thought these were the villains, but now they've become the villains. And that's what I don't want to happen to us. If America is going to re- be restored, we cannot become them. We see the dedication with which they shadow ban us on social media, demonetize us for telling the truth. Uh, Trump is being persecuted. He's not being persecuted because of what, what he's done. What did he ever do? He's being persecuted because of what he says. And when I tell you, uh, you know, when I tell you to buy the house of love and death, I know it's self-serving. I, I hate promoting myself. But, but when I tell you that, I, I I'm trying to tell you that it matters. It matters that these visions, these personal visions of the things that have happened to us are transformed into our vision of what the world can be be like. Because if we don't learn to tell our stories in ways that everyone, left and right, can understand, explain who we are in our hearts and minds, explain what it's like to have the YouTube bullies demonetize us for what when we're telling simple truths like men are men and women are women, to have our, our careers hurt, to have our incomes taken away. You know, I've said a million times that I've never lost sleep about losing my Hollywood income, having to sell my house and all this. And, and that's true. I never lost sleep. But but it is a story. It is a thing that happened to me, and it didn't feel great. It, you know, obviously, it's not something I thought, oh, great, I have no money. You know, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I knew I was doing the right thing, and so I did it. If we don't learn to tell our stories, if we don't support the people who tell stories, if we don't make sure the inner experience of what the left has done to us becomes everyone's experience, then we will never be able to change minds. It doesn't matter what laws we pass, and it doesn't matter who gets elected. As everyone knows, I love a nice dinner with a drink to go with it, but sometimes those post-dinner drinks can lead to a not-so-nice morning the next day. That's where Z-Biotics come into play. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produce an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut, where you need it most. My producer Danny loves Zbiotics. He always wakes up refreshed and ready to go after a night out. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol, drink responsibly, and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash Clavin to get 15% off your first order with code Claven at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Claven and use code Claven at checkout for 15% off your first order. And if you wake up tomorrow and can't remember how to spell Claven, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. Final chapter in an empire of lies. So I wrote a novel around, I think it's around 2008, called Empire of Lies. And here is a condensed quote from the book, all right? So now, 2008 is now 15 years ago. In an empire of lies, only a crazy man would speak the truth. And crazy people do crazy things. They do stupid things and wrong things. They don't destroy someone for saying that their false ideas are false. They destroy him for doing something crazy, but you have to be crazy to tell them their ideas are false. Because if you do, they'll find a way to destroy you. So that's the system. That's a great system. That's a perpetual machine. Because you've got to, to take on the power, this incredible power that's a, that is congealing around us to take our freedoms away and to create a world of materialism and emptiness and butchering children and abortion and meaningless sex and no families because that's the kind of community they can control. To take them on, you've got to be a little nuts. And crazy people like Russell Brand and Bill Cosby, they do bad things and they destroy you for the bad things that you do. So how do you strike back? And the answer is not, it's not an easy answer. You know, there was an article 
Excellent article by Ashley Rinsberg uh, in the tablet. He's the guy who wrote the book about the New York Times, the gray lady winked, I think it's called. And he's, he points out that a whistleblower recently told the House Select Committee that when six of the seven specialists tasked by the CIA with investigating the origins of the COVID virus concluded with low confidence that the COVID virus likely came from a lab in Wuhan, the CIA paid those scientists hush money to reverse their decisions. They bribed them to shut up. And Rinsberg says, why would the CIA want to hide evidence that the virus might have come from a Chinese government laboratory? The answer may have to do with the fact that funding for the infamous Wuhan Institute of Virology came from the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, which is relevant because USAID, while nominally America's foreign aid agency, has decades-long ties to the CIA and a history of acting as a cutout for the intelligence agency. And he mentioned, goes on to mention that the New York Times and the Washington Post were among the first major news outlets in tandem to say the lab origin was a conspiracy, like Ray Epps being a federal agent. There's another excellent article in the Claremont Review of Books, excellent, by Glenn Elmers about the COVID, about reactions to COVID. And he says many uh, than a f- more than a few analysts have speculated that the most constitutionally dubious pandemic measures were pretexts to solidify and embolden an emerging authoritarianism on the part of global elites. Such concerns are not evidence of paranoia. This May, the Rockefeller Foundation announced a new multi-million dollar partnership with the World Health Organization from the UN, uh, Berlin-based, with the World Health Organization's Berlin-based hub for pandemic and epidemic intelligence. The Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, is a non-government or organization with offices in Oslo, London, and Washington. It has been received $3 billion in funding from governments and private donors. It's run by Richard Hatchett, a former U.S. national security official. According to its web- website, CPI was founded in Davos by the governments of Norway and India, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the World Economic Forum with major funding from the U.N. foundations. It goes on and on. All these things are connected. The Gates Foundation also funds 13% of the WHO who budget, while 80% of its budget comes from private sources. So billionaires making billions, controlling what you do in order to make more billions. But don't worry, they're the good guys. Here's Bill Gates talking to a BBC reporter about why it's okay for him to fly around on a private jet, cut 10. Let me put it to you directly. What do you say to the charge that if you are a climate change campaigner, but you also travel around the world on a private jet, you're a hypocrite? Well, I... I, by the gold standard of funding Climeworks to do direct air capture that far exceeds my family's carbon footprint. And I spend billions of dollars on, on climate innovation. So, you know, should I stay at home and not come to Kenya and learn about farming and malaria? I'm comfortable with the idea that not only am I not part of the problem by paying for the offsets, but uh, also through the billions that my Breakthrough Energy Group is spending, that I'm part of the solution. So because he has billions, he's comfortable. As long as he's comfortable, (laughs) he has billions, he can do whatever he wants. And because you don't have billions, you will do what he says. Here's the Pfizer president, Albert Burles in Davos, uh, on inventing pills, medicine, with tracking devices inside Cut 11. It is a basically biological chip that it is in the tablet. And once you take the tablet and dissolves into your stomach, it sends a signal that you took the tablet. So imagine the applications of that, compliance, uh, the insurance companies to know that the medicines that patients should take, they do take them. Uh, It is uh, fascinating what happens in in, uh, this field. So imagine the compliance that they can do when they can bug your body. So here's Russell Brand on Bill Maher, cut three. The pandemic created at least 40 new big pharma billionaires. Pharmaceutical corporations like Moderna and Pfizer made $1,000 of profit every second from the (laughs) COVID-19 vaccine. More than two-thirds of Congress received campaign funding from pharmaceutical companies in the 2020 election. Pfizer chairman Albert Baller told Time magazine in July 2020 that his company was developing a COVID vaccine for the good of humanity, not for money. And of course, Pfizer made $100 billion in profit in 2022. And and may I just mention, finally, and this is also 
also a fact that you, the American public, funded the development of that. The German fund, public funded the BioNTech vaccine. When it came to the profits, they took the profits. When it came to the funding, you paid for the funding. See, Russell Brand may have raped women. He really may have. I think there's a high likelihood. But he's not being charged with raping women. He's being charged with that, with talking against the narrative. Donald Trump may have broken the law, but he's not being charged with breaking the law. He's being charged for what he says because it breaks the narrative and makes it okay to break the narrative, which is why, I mean, this is an almost perfect machine because in an empire of lies, only a crazy man will tell the truth and crazy people do bad things and they get you for the bad things you do, which is why in order to fight these horrible, tyrannical, stupid bastards, you've got to first face yourself and become the kind of person who will tell the truth regardless. This is how, this is the way it worked in the old days. And we, you know, we all think about the Roman empire every day. And this is the way all the early Christians did. They didn't attack the Roman empire. All they did was deny the narrative that the emperors were gods. That's all they did. And they were fed to the lions. The lions are still alive. They're living in Davos and they're still prowling and they still want to eat the same people. If you don't become the person who is willing to walk into the den, the lion's den, if you don't become the person who is going to tell the truth, no matter what, there's no truth going to be told because we cannot leave it to the crazy. We can't leave it to only the mad to tell the truth. We have to be the people who tell the truth in order to save our freedom without losing our souls. They can't silence us all. Things continue to heat up with the new Daily Wire Plus series convicting a murderer. Apparently, Stephen Avery is directing his fans from behind bars to flood Rotten Tomatoes and give convicting a murderer a bad review, which is just weird. You know, I, I, if he thought he was had a hard time dealing with the law, wait till he gets on Candace's bad side. He and his Facebook group, Stephen Avery is Innocent, are even referring to convicting a murderer as garbage, as if the opinion of a convicted murderer is of any value to anyone. Nevertheless, it seems we have made Stephen Avery and his fans very, very angry. I'm so sorry. Which means the series is doing its job, and we're about to double down with episode five. Take a look. Coming up on Convicting a Murderer. Well, you think that the Sheriff's Department is framing you because of the lawsuit, right? That's what I think. Okay. James Lank, Andy Colburn, they were involved in the old case, and here they are again in this new case. Stephen Avery is released from prison after being wrongfully convicted. Avery's attorneys say those hardships are worth $36 million. Why were Manitowoc officers involved when there was a $36 million pending lawsuit against them? Lank and Colburn were villains, the main ones accused of planting evidence. Were you asked to perform a thorough search of this piece of furniture? Yes. Suddenly, I hear Lieutenant Link say, there's a key on the floor. I knew the significance of that, and I said, you guys just f***ed up my case. New episodes are released every Thursday exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. Head over there now to start the series if you haven't already. If you're not a member, go to dailywireplus.com slash subscribe to join today. Clavin clapbacks. Woo! When life gives you lemons, just say the lemons. <laughs> it's very profound. Jared Johnson says, Dear Clavin, bereft of ease, I want you to know that there are a couple of us recent graduates from Franciscan University of Steubenville that only half-jokingly call ourselves your disciples because of your how your religious literary wisdom has deeply impacted our faiths and lives. To me, you're a living C.S. Lewis. Well, thank you for that. That's, you know, I, I always, people say that about me, and I always think of Hemingway when they compared him to Shakespeare. He said they, they shouldn't compare you to Willie, and uh, my feeling is they shouldn't compare you to Claude. Uh, he says, I mentioned my alma mater because most or all of us 18, 22-year-olds who attend smaller Christian schools go because we want the community. In a healthy Christian community, nice women are the norm. I'm dating. I've dated a few. Some of my buddies are already married with kids very shortly after graduating. And the same goes for career. Many of us seek out Christian or good values company because the larger environment allows relationships to flourish uh, and this is where it, this puts you in places from which the Renaissance will be born. Really interesting uh, idea from the very beginning. You have to be in the Christian community if you want to meet these girls who want to 
from the very start, want marriage and want, uh, you know, sexual propriety and to live a, a, a good, uh, uh, the, the, the joyful life, the joyful life. That's what it is. From Abby, uh, good evening, Mr. Cleveland. I have been watching your show for the last four years and I just love it. I never miss a show. I like the way you talk about women. It's helped me to feel good about being a woman, which hasn't always been the case. I'm 24. I've been on a journey since childhood to figure out how to reconcile being a woman with my typically masculine interests and personality. I was sort of hoping when I got married, the femininity fairy would sprinkle magic dust on me, but it's been two years and I'm as much of a tomboy as ever. I'm about to get out of the military and hoping to become a mother soon after, so maybe one of those things will attract the femininity fairy, but I have my doubts. Is this even something I should be worrying about? No, it is not, Abby. Uh, that it is not. You have a husband who loves you. Uh, you want to be a mom. You will be a mom. You know, this, this idea that all women are one way and all men are another, and if you're not that way, you're actually the opposite sex, is the stupidest, craziest nonsense ever. It is obviously an attack on humanity, on the family, on motherhood and fatherhood. You are who you are. You have found a man who loves you. You have found a man who wants to have children with you. God bless you. Be who you are. You are not responsible to being a certain way. You are responsible for doing certain things, and it sounds like you're doing them, and uh, go forward in peace and stop worrying about it. Uh, Sarah, to the baldest, wisest, most handsome, handsome version of Gandalf in the multiverse. I have three children. I'm trying to determine, all preschool age, I'm trying to determine the best means of education. Both homeschooling and private schools are viable options for our family. What made you and your wife choose private schooling for our children's, your children's education? We didn't know any better. I don't think we would have thought of, of homeschooling, but today I would homeschool. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I actually want to know my wife was committed to that, but I don't see why you shouldn't homeschool in a community of homeschoolers so the kids get socialized and have friends and all that stuff. Uh, you know, obviously they shouldn't, it shouldn't be that they never leave the house, but there's plenty of uh, resources for that. And I think home, right now homeschooling is the only way to go. All right, we are plunging rapidly like a falling elevator, like a train that's gone off the derail while it's up on a high bridge, like that end of Mission Impossible into the clavenless eternity, unless you're a member. So become a member right this moment. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe, dailywire.com slash subscribe, and use code claven at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. If you are already a member, then you are blessed. Come on over to Member Block.